Welcome to the Microgreens Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Krokmalden. Together, we'll explore the art of turning tiny seeds into a thriving microgreens empire, sharing insights, coveted secrets, and strategic wisdom from building one of Canada's largest microgreens farms. Stay tuned for thought-provoking conversations with leading figures in the world of microgreens. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we have Ivan Velor from Greens Bali in Bali, Indonesia. On this episode, we're going to be talking all about running a large-scale microgreens business with over 200 customers, including five-star hotels and the largest grocery chains in Bali, the unique challenges and opportunities running a farm in Indonesia, and Greens Bali unique perspective and innovative approach to sales, and so, so much more. Let's get right into it. Hey, Ivan, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on. Hey, Jonah, thanks for having me. I'm also very excited. It's uh, my first time on a, on a podcast. Awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited to share your story. So I'd love to hear how you kind of got interested in microgreens and how Greens Bali came to be what it is today. Um, so we were in Bali, my partner and I, Helen, um, uh going starting with the uh, pandemic um there was partial lockdown it wasn't as strict as the rest of the world here um but both of us uh, didn't have a job and we were just watching uh, netflix documentaries um almost all day and and other movies and then um we uh, came across a, a documentary that's called kiss the ground and in that documentary they they explain how how challenging it is um to have a good soil uh across the world that that is able to uh sequester uh co2 so that we're not flooding the atmosphere with uh, co2 and one of the solutions that they that they mentioned in the documentary was that in the future um, many of us would have to uh, plant our own greens and and be self-sustainable in a in a way so that really shocked me um, and since I had no job at at the moment um, I thought it would be a good idea to explore a solution for for Indonesia which uh, the the agriculture industry here is sixty uh, percent of the total uh, um, industry um wow so i i thought well the 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 impact in indonesia is going to be much greater than most parts of the world so uh we could think of a solution to solve that so first of all what we did is we planted um our own garden in the villa that we were rented we planted tomatoes we planted uh, onions potatoes um, and other things and once it was planted, I was like, okay, well, now I have to wait like four months to eat something. <laughs> so I was like, this is, this is really slow. It's very, it's very annoying. So I started YouTubing and looking around, what can I plant at home? What can I grow fast and eat uh, every month? And I came across this uh, YouTuber uh, from a farm in the, in the U.S. Uh, called uh boston microgreens um, oh, nice. and and 
the guy, funny enough, lived in Spain, so we had something in, in common. I started following and asking him a, a lot of questions. And then I, I decided to try to plant uh, microgreens with, with a small uh, tray next to my desk with a clip-on lamp on the desk, uh, pointing down at the floor um, and see what, what happened. And in seven days, I had a, a fully grown tray of uh, radish microgreens looking amazing. And I was really, really impressed. I was not expecting such a yield, such a like bushiness of the, of the whole tray and everything. And I yeah. was, I was really impressed. So I, yeah, that's, that's basically how it started. We, we, we decided to, to plant more and then we went around uh, to the restaurants, our favorite restaurants here in Bali, to a Spanish tapas restaurant and to other people. And one guy said, wow, this is amazing. No one is growing this here. Uh, if you can grow one kilo of this variety for me uh, every week, I'll buy this from you. And I was like, okay, well, I have 150 grams in one tray. That means I need to plant uh, more than uh, five trays to, to, to fulfill the the demand of this guy only um basically everything kind of snowballed one guy told the other the other the other and we were the only ones in in bali and we were in a small villa um and at that time we had a 20 uh square meter room um it was really small we were buying shelves like ikea shelves just to, to put the things in the lamps the cheapest lamps we didn't know anything about lights so um yeah we did a very very small setup until we just we just couldn't fit anymore in in the in that villa um and over time we met someone who was expert in in raising funds um and a venture capital was very interested in in investing in in this type of businesses and it made sense for them to to invest in in vertical farming in in indonesia um we were the third vertical farm uh in indonesia and the first wow. one in, in bali um so we secured an in, an investment after depleting all our savings all our parents savings and and everything we secured a, an investment of a hundred and twenty thousand uh dollars um to build this uh, this warehouse, this is uh, total facilities a thousand square meters. Um, oh, wow! Th this is uh, in my background. This is uh, farm two. We call it. This is where we have the the baby greens. Um, yeah. So we, everything everything really snowballed from the moment we brought the tray to to the Spanish uh, tapas uh, uh, restaurant. That's that's awesome. Yeah, that that's a, that's a great story. What a what a what an interesting and fascinating story on 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 how you guys started. That that's awesome. That's really great to hear. It's kind of funny uh, you mentioned Boston Microgreens. I was actually just there uh, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a month ago now, um, and I did a, a full farm tour um, at, at their facility. And it's on it's on YouTube now for anyone that's interested in checking it out. Um, small world. <laughs> that uh, that's how you got into it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I I'd love to hear kind of. Who you sell your products to? So it's, it's so far I hear restaurants is um, uh, one of your customers. Is that your main customer base? Is restaurants? Yes. So 
We have a total customer base of around 220 uh, customers. Wow. Um, around 60% of that is uh, restaurants, uh, restaurants and, and hotels. So we categorize by Oreca channel, uh, restaurants and hotels are 60%. And then the rest is supermarkets and distributors. Supermarkets are really important for us because we started really, really early with them and we evolved our relationship to be almost a partnership today. They give us uh, very good visibility, which uh, sparks uh, interest of individual customers who want to buy directly on our website. Um, and then it opened a, a new category for them uh, that they, they didn't have before. And it's, um, it's, it's really good. So supermarkets um, uh, generate a big chunk of, of, of the volume, uh, almost 50% uh, of, of the volume comes wow. from, comes from supermarkets. They, they are regular. Uh, they don't, they don't have too much care on whether the products are sold or not on the, on their shop. So they would, they will order regularly Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or depend on the shop, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Um, and they don't, they just, uh, uh, order if something they have not sold, they, they will just remove and, and replace with, uh, with new products because they, they assume they have a, a wastage percentage and, yeah. um, and that's what, that's what they do in terms of, uh, restaurants and, and hotels. We are in the top 10 five-star hotels in, in, in Bali, uh, challenging relationships uh, uh, here. I'm sure maybe uh, the rest of the world uh, as well. Um, they are um, yeah. uh, very uh, demanding uh, uh, people, demanding uh, in the sense of, of quality and, and, uh, and, and timing and delivery schedules and so on. So to organize, same as supermarkets, by the way, uh, to organize your whole business oriented to fulfilling all these little logistic details, quality standards, and so on is uh, was was very challenging, very very challenging. And and today we're still uh, uh, have a lot of things to to improve. And then the restaurants um, is more relaxed, more friendly relationship. But um, at the end of the day, if you increase the, your, your customer base of, 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 of restaurants, you can grow much faster than because supermarkets, there's only so many, there's, yeah. there's, uh, 47, uh, shops in, in Bali. We are in 29, wow. uh, and then hotels, high end hotels, uh, there's 150 in Bali. We are in 46. Um, wow. And then all the, all the tourist oriented, uh, uh, restaurants, we are almost in, in, in all of them. Uh, but there's just so many to that, that you can, you can go to. Yeah. That that's incredible. Like you guys have completely dominated the market in Bali. Uh, and, and it's a market that in, in my opinion, it's a very tourist oriented, uh, uh, place, uh, but local income is very, is very low. So it's got to be, I'm guessing most of, or if not all of your customers would be 
tourists or uh, people that like yourself that moved to Bali from other countries that had a higher income. Uh, that's one of the things I thought was was fascinating is seeing you know how large of a farm you have in a in a place like like Bali, uh, which is really cool. And it's amazing how uh, how much Bali has grown since the pandemics. Mm -hmm, yeah, Bali is typically a, a place, a region that that has one million fixed uh, inhabitants here, um, and then they receive around 4.5 million visitors um, per year. Wow. So, so, and all these visitors are, are mainly Chinese, Japanese, and then uh, the rest, uh, English, uh, German, European, some Americans. Um, but yeah, uh, but Bali is, is, a, is a small place, it's a, it's a small island. Um, and it's packed with people um, that that only want to consume uh, uh, all the time. So, yes, our main customer would be uh, expats or, or or tourists, but the purchase managers of hotels and and restaurants here in Bali they're Indonesian, mm. and they are the ones buying the products uh, uh, from us uh, because they feel that they need to have a, a, a better offer versus the, 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 the other restaurants uh, uh, here in Bali. And more and more, we're targeting uh, more local people who are more conscious about what they eat and, and, and all these things. And, and I think it, uh, Indonesians will get there. There is a will here in Bali, especially versus the rest of Indonesia, um, to have a, a better diet, a better way of, of, of eating and to kind of understand where the products come from, what are you actually eating, packaging, uh, sustainability things, organic farming. Here is uh, in Bali is, is booming and Jakarta is starting to, to pick up. And when Jakarta picks up, um, we will need at least 50 vertical farms in, in Jakarta because only in Jakarta, greater area, there's 33 million people. So yeah yeah so. it's people don't realize how how big of a population indonesia has and how large it is physically uh you know if, if you took indonesia it would be wider than than north america just from all the islands i think it's somewhere around 200 million people which is a, a, one of the biggest countries in the world so it, it's people don't often think of it that way but it there, there is it, it's a it's a very large country and jakarta is a very metropolis kind of city Oh, I, I was going to say it's 270 uh, million people wow. um, last census in 2023. And the rate of growth is around 5% uh, per year. This means that by the year uh, 2030, there will be 290 million people here, which is already the, the, the fourth biggest country in terms of population uh, in the world. Yeah. Wow. That's... <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I, I, I'm so fascinated with that whole region that I could probably talk to you for hours just on geography uh, and all that. Uh, but to get back to the microgreens, so given that you have a pretty good mix of retail, so grocery stores and restaurants, what what is your product offerings look like? Like what what are your top sellers? How many varieties you grow? All that kind of good stuff. 
we are growing here around, I think, uh, 17 uh, varieties of uh, microgreens and then four varieties of uh, baby greens. Now, in terms of uh, uh, best sellers, we, four of our products generate 80% of our total revenue. Um, and that is green mustard microgreens, broccoli microgreens, red cabbage, um, pea shoots, and yeah, and then there's there's a close uh, uh, follower there, which is red vein sorrel. We we put red vein sorrel as a as a baby baby green because of the type of shoot that that it is. All of these uh, 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 four products, they we 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 know they are in, in high demand, and we could plant. I could build another farm like this and and plant all these four varieties and we would sell them all uh, as well. But because you're always trying to uh, catch up with your expenses and investments and, and, the, and the revenue and the cost, we are stable in terms of uh, reinvesting and, and, and doing things again here. But yes, those four varieties. Um, so when we started the, the company, we worked with the Spanish tapas chef, our first uh, customer, uh, Ruben, and I, I said, what would be interesting for a chef to have available? Like, what do you guys need when, when you play around with your new menu? What do you need? And he said, well, it's very simple. We have a tasting wheel uh, where we categorize how a plate would taste. Is it spicy? Is it sweet? Is it citrus? How is the, is the plate? Uh, 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 built and, and what flavors do we want to uh, uh, throw to the customer. So he said, if you are able to give me uh, all the flavor spectrum available in, 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 in microgreens, then that, that would help you go into many restaurants because um, not everyone has the same tasting profiles. And here in Indonesia, the, some cuisine is, is a bit spicy and so on. So we did that. We did the flavor wheel and we tried to put two microgreens on every different taste. Uh, wow. And, and, and we came across with, I think it was 10 at, at the beginning, but then uh, uh, people wanted more uh, colorful and, and for decoration purposes also. So that wasn't in the tasting wheel because... Um, usually colorful microgreens uh, like red amaranth and, and these type of things, they are tasteless. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so decoration and all the, all the, all the flavors in the, in the tasting world, that's how we build the, the varieties that we have right now. That's so interesting. What, what a unique way to look at, because like you think about approaching a chef, if you present it in a way that it's like, here's, uh, here's, uh, the, the different play, uh, flavor profiles. And like, you have like, I don't know if you have like a chart or something and then like doing the tasting, that's like a, a, a very great way to engage the chef or the, the, the owner of, of the restaurant. Um, and be like, Hey, you can literally use microgreens for any, no matter what type of dish you have, no matter what flavor you're looking for, we offer it. And it's like, how do you say no to that? So that, that what a great marketing, uh, uh, technique to use, to, to get into restaurants. I think that's, that's, that's genius. Thank you. Yeah, it, it was it was it was something um, it was something really really important. Uh, 
again, I, I have to uh, reiterate that we are not uh, agriculture people. We don't have agriculture background. Yeah. Um, so it was it was more of an uh, uh, of a marketing way to approach uh, uh, things, uh, yeah. rather than a, a logical way for for a farmer or for a, an expert uh, indoor farmer um, thing. Uh, but then I, I also think because I have sales background, I also think that listening to the customer's needs is uh, is is always will always get you farther ahead. And if you have to take time to do market research before starting a, a business, even if your product is is the best in the world, getting the feedback before doing anything for us is the day to day thing. We're doing market research on many things every single month. Uh, uh, we dedicate our sales team. They go out with uh, sheets that I make and, and just ask questions. N no selling, just ask questions. Yeah, uh, that, and, that's and, really smart. Um, yeah, yeah. That that's what what a, what a, a unique perspective uh, on marketing is like. Instead of trying to sell something, just gather as much information, and then with that, it makes it a lot easier to sell something because then you know what's actually wanted, what issues arise in what whatever it may be in in in, uh, in the sales process or pricing or whatever, and then you can take that back and adjust accordingly, and and it makes it a lot easier to grow. And really great advice there. I think that's 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 amazing. Um, now, in terms of uh, production, I'm curious on what you guys do for soil, because I'm guessing peat moss is not easily available in that part of the world. So what, 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 is, what is your soil slash fertilizer regimen kind of look like to grow microgreens uh, in Indonesia? Um, here in Indonesia, there is a type of uh, grow medium that is very, very available, uh, which is cocoa peat. Um, a lot of the cocoa peat sold in Southeast Asia is produced in, in Indonesia. So Interesting. cocoa peat is, uh, was meant to be uh, one of the uh, uh, soil solutions that, that we used. And mm -hmm. then um, as we moved along and we hired uh, experts, uh, farm managers and, and people here, they recommended peat moss, uh, but not 100% peat moss. So we, we use 50% cocoa peat, 50% uh, peat moss. We mix everything together in a, in a container, um, and then we wash, we wash it with a, a, a solution mix of uh, water and hydrogen peroxide. Um, we wash it by hand. We, we make sure uh, everything is moist and, and, and everything has been in contact with the uh, solution that, that we put. Um, and, and we use that. And, and peat moss is not available here in, in Indonesia. And, uh, the peat moss that we get uh, is imported by some company in, in Jakarta. It's a Klassman uh, peat moss. I think a, a lot of people use use that. And it's, it's really good. Um, apparently, it has the right nutrients and consistency for for the tiny roots to 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 grow and then with the mix of the of the of the cocoa peat it helps you dissipate uh, a lot of the uh, humidity and, and and water retention and, and and so on so i think we we found that combination a lot of trial and error before we could afford to hire a, a farm manager an experienced farm manager um 
we Helen and I uh, were were testing these things ourselves. We were buying soil from the north of Bali that is a volcano uh, soil, uh, black uh, soil. We thought uh, uh, that was very nutrient rich. It is, but it, uh, the consistency is is not very good for for the water. And you pour water, and it's like the beach. It, 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 it's it, it just stays there. Um, so we we did a lot of trial and errors. We tried uh, rock wool. We try uh, we tried uh, textile fibers because I I, I saw these guys uh, in in Aero Farms. They they were using these uh, plastic recycled uh, textile fibers. Um, and and they would they would sew this this the 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 fibers and 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 then they would wash them again and reuse them over and over. I thought that was um, a, a clever idea, but for some reason here um, we were not able to find the right thickness, the right textile, and then the cost of goods uh, of 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 one tray were very high, so we needed to find a, a, a solution to reduce the cost per, per per tray so the mixture cocoa peat here is costless uh, people yeah. almost will give it for you to you uh, uh, for free uh, it's yeah. so abundant it's it's insane so so we we use that and and, and peat moss yeah i think coconut coir especially in in parts of the world where it's actually grown is is a great solution in my experience because I, I really wanted to to use it when i started growing 10 years ago. So I did a lot of experimenting with coconut coir and I found it's often very high in salt because it's usually grown somewhere like mostly in North America comes from uh, Sri Lanka or India. And it's very, very high in, in sodium, magnesium chloride and potassium chloride. Um, and and it, it just caused more issues than it solved, um, even though it is much more sustainable because you just take it from the husk of a coconut and coconuts grow you know, you get, I don't know if it's one crop or multiple crops a year. Um, so the material itself is a lot more sustainable, but the water usage is where it becomes a, a, a problem in some of these countries. So they send like salty coconut coir to North America. Do you find you have the same issue there where the coconut coir, because you said you were doing this washing process. Was that to remove the, like partially to remove the salt? Yes. Yes. So, so the, 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 um... The cocoa coir here, the, um, it's it's not treated industrially. Um, to yeah. have good good cocoa coir, you need to uh, boil it uh, and then sterilize it. This this process is is not done here, um, and because we don't have the capabilities to to do that ourselves, what we do is we we wash it. Uh, ideally, we we want to wash it with the mixture already uh, together because peat moss can also bring some unwanted bacteria or maybe fungi or things like that. Um, but yes, we we the cocoa peat needs to be uh, 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 washed and and kind of like sterilized um, before adding it to the tray. And then the other part is the water that that you add. Uh, you also need to complement the water with with nutrients, um, with a, a good level of, of nitrogen um, and sodium uh, that we find uh, uh, essential. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. That, I, it, it, it's, uh, it's pretty much the main issue with coconut coir because it's, it's such a great medium in so many ways. But um, I, yeah, I found the same thing. If you grow in just coconut coir, it holds a lot of water. 
um, more than peat moss, um, which is good in some ways, but I think it holds too much water that it causes sometimes uh, overwatering issues um, that peat moss generally has less of. Uh, you can still overwater with peat moss, but just less. So it's cool that you're using, using both because I think peat moss is, is a really great clean medium, but it's less renewable than coconut coir. So at least if you're using about half and half, you're reducing the amount of imports and still using that local source, but getting the better results by using the peat moss. So it's a good middle ground to, to take on the soil front. I, my, my guess is if you ended up getting that plastic uh, um, uh, reusable material, the results wouldn't have been as good from a, a growth perspective. From all my experience, the hemp fiber mats, rock wool, they all just don't produce as high of a quality of a microene. Um, and given that the market that you're selling to is like, you know, often higher end restaurants and, and very, very uh, uh, particular chefs is the, is the nice way to put it, um, that uh, you would want the quality to be as top notch as, as, as you can get. Um, so you're, you're in right now in one room of the farm. So how many of these grow rooms do you have? And then about how many trays are you growing on a, on a weekly basis to serve all those, all those customers? We have two farms, or two rooms. Uh, this is farm two. Uh, this is the more modern uh, farm that we have after receiving the, the investment. This is uh, the farm that we build more more automated. Uh, the, I guess you can see that this is a blue thing. It's a water tank here. Uh, oh, okay. And then it, uh, with the pipes, typical yep. system, flooding and, and everything. And the other farm is manual and is amateur and is uh what what anyone would build in in the first try so typical shelves that you would find uh anywhere uh yeah. with with modest uh, uh light solutions not automated um but we have a, a lot of uh, capacity in there because at the beginning we were just stacking things one next to another and we said hey don't worry, just fit as many microgreens as, uh, or trays as possible in this room, and then we'll figure out the rest. Um, we are, uh, on a monthly basis, we are uh, harvesting, we have 2,400 uh, 10 by 20 trays. Wow. Um, and we are harvesting uh, them around two sometimes three times a, a, a month on, on average. Um, one part, what, one big part uh, of the trays is uh, red vein sorrel, um, which is extremely challenging to, to grow and fulfill the demand that, that we have, yeah. especially because the, the chefs are very picky and they request two to three centimeter leaves, which, which, which means that you need to uh, dedicate one person harvesting red vein sorrel leaves uh, the whole morning uh, uh, during one hour. And in one hour, you can harvest 70 grams. One person can harvest 70 grams of leaves of sorrel. Wow. Uh, but in one day, we have demand of one kilo. So that is four people uh, harvesting sorrel during four hours uh every day and then in the afternoon another two hours the same four people so that it's ready for for the morning because of this um you need to have 
we uh, out of these 2400 trays we have 400 trays of of sorel that are almost all growing at the same pace so that we can harvest the leaves and then we we reharvest uh, uh, a second growth until we we discard the, the the soil and 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 the tray but you need to have 400 trays growing almost at the same time at the same size and and everything until so so that you can uh, uh redo the, the the cycle again over yeah. and over um and that means 400 trays on the shelves on the lights that means you need around 200 trays uh, uh on germination um and around 100 trays on on the following uh uh phase of uh of germination um yeah sorel is a is a challenging one and and doing things manually it's very hardly scalable like if we grow yeah. more than what we are what we have right now the cost of uh, harvesting sorel and 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 people uh that you need to harvest is 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 not it's not good it's not yeah it's not positive. yeah it's it sounds like it's a, a bit of a kind of like a loss leader where everyone wants it but it, it's not the most profitable crop to grow because of how labor intensive it is. I know a lot of farms grow it, but I've never heard of anyone having that much demand uh, for red vein sorrel. But you know, with all the restaurants in, in Bali, uh, it, it is, in my opinion, it is the most beautiful microgreen. Um, and it's unfortunate that it also happens to be one of, if not the hardest one, to actually have a good growing recipe. Um, have you ever considered selling them by the leaf instead of by weight? Because uh, that, that like, I know with edible flowers, people do that, and it sounds like it's 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 much more used in that way um that that maybe selling it by the leaf might be a better option to make it more viable yeah we we did consider this um but then you come across the fact that uh the packaging and the plastic that you're using like if if someone um if someone wants to buy 10 leaves and you have one plastic uh, packaging yeah. for this for the same quantity of 100 leaves for example then you're just wasting a, a, a lot of uh, packaging, and 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 you, if you sell it in carton, then in in a carton box, it doesn't hold as long as yeah. as, as plastic. So, yes, we, we we did consider, but what we do is we grow pots, uh, sorrel pots. So oh, okay, uh, like like mini pots that we have here in the in the NFT. Um, we we grow pots it produces like a bouquet like this of, of leaves and then chefs they can uh, uh, pick and it's a bit more affordable than a, than a, a big pack of, of sorrel leaves that that uh, that we have so that's that's the alternative yeah that, that's a good alternative considering how much labor it seems to be to harvest the leaves at that ideal size um, I'm guessing it's the, it's a different customer that would buy the pot because the ones that want the specific leaf want it to be two to three centimeters, not bigger or smaller sort of thing, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So I'd love to hear um, more about what the average week looks like for you. It sounds like you have a, a, a pretty sizable production and, and team. So um, I'm curious on what uh, yourself and Helen and, and what the staff kind of do on a weekly basis and how you know, with microgreens, it's, it's always seven days a week, all year round. So I'd love to kind of hear how you manage all that and what an average week looks like. So here we are a team of 15, including, uh, Helen and I, um, 
there's a, there's a farm team, there's a customer service team, there's a sales team, there's a delivery team, and then there's one accountant, um, and Helen and I. Typically, what we do is uh, we have six uh, uh, work days in, in, in a week. I'm really pushing to have seven, but the staff is a bit angry about that. Um, so typically what we do is um, at six in the morning, we harvest uh, the remaining orders that we couldn't harvest the day before. So if you start on Monday, no one, uh, only one farmer came to work on, on Sunday just to water and look things around. Um, but uh, in the middle of the week, for example, uh, the farmers would harvest uh, part of the orders that we already know uh, so that the, the, the morning is not so busy. So at six in the morning, they harvest the remaining orders that they have for the day, uh, they pack, and once the farmers are, are done with that, they start uh, the watering process in the manual farm in, 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 in farm one. Um, and after the, the watering is done and, and they have cleaned the area where they harvested, they will, um, they will start planting and looking at the, at the demands from last week. And, 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 and well, we have, we have a, a monthly plan, but uh, we adjust things uh, every week. Um, they, they will plant and after uh, planting, they have, it's already 12 uh, in the morning, they, they will have the, the, their lunch break and, and so on. And in the afternoon, they're only here until 2 p.m. So they, they will do the harvesting for, for the following day. In terms of, of, of our deliveries, because the traffic in, in Bali is horrible, um, we want to push for the orders to leave here as soon as possible. So we try to get the orders ready by eight in the morning with all the labels, stickers, barcodes, and everything from supermarkets. Uh, uh, we, we have it ready by eight in the morning. But then we have to wait for uh, a delivery guy who brings uh, edible flowers from a from a indoor farm that we partner with. They grow uh, uh, the edible flowers for us. So we wait for that to to arrive. And once that arrives, we we separate the edible flowers from for the orders, and we uh, and we start the uh, delivery. Deliveries can go from nine in the morning until three p.m. in the afternoon. Um, nine in the morning is a chaos in, in, in Bali, but then everyone is at work. So at 10, uh, in the morning, it's usually a good time to, to, to drive around. They go with the scooters, but we have a, we have a van, uh, for, for huge orders from hotels and, and, uh, supermarkets that we can use. Although I've seen it was faster to, uh, have an extra driver with another scooter um, and then have more scooters on the road than using uh, the car. This way they can split the order on the supermarkets. They can sort their way out through, through traffic much faster and we deliver the products faster because on a scooter um, you have the, uh, the, the delivery bags uh, that we fill with, with ice packs and it's usually two to three hours, uh, the, the ice packs are, are useful. Um, so after we, we deliver the orders, the, the, the drivers uh, will come back. Some people paying cash, some people have 
credit terms. So they they will either either bring the cash back to to the uh, uh, accountant or just come back to the office here at the end. Um, then during the day, the sales team uh, we meet every morning um, and we we kind of decide whether we need to target uh, customers that we have lost versus the previous month or if we need to kind of do more uh, relationships with the existing customers so that we kind of hug them and let them know they are important for us. Uh, usually that, that translates into a, a sales guy going there for a coffee, just chatting around, doing some jokes. Oh, by the way, I, I brought you this this present, this, this, this thing that I was growing. Oh, baby kill. We have this available for you now. If you're not buying it, well, you might want to consider it and that's it. Um, and then other days, the sales guys, they, uh, focus on, uh, targeting new customers. Uh, and because now we've uh, expanded our offering, not only for microgreens and baby greens, we're also offering fruits and vegetables. Um, oh, cool. After our partnerships with uh, many farmers here, because we have a big customer base, we thought that uh, it would be a great solution for our customers to have one supplier of everything. Um, so we made agreements with uh, local farmers here to get nice quality, uh, nice, nice prices. Here's a uh, broccoli, oh, for nice. example. <laughs> um, so the sales uh, will go to do the uh, delivery of samples. Uh, uh, two or three days a, a week, we do delivery of samples, trying to target new customers. And then we evaluate when they come back at, uh, they usually visit 10, 10 uh, uh, new uh, customers every day. Um, and when they come back at 3 p.m., we have another meeting and we, and, and we, we deal with objections. Uh, um, in Indonesia, the mindset that we have in Europe or in the US, uh, where I grew up is, is, is very different here. Money, um, is not as relevant as the rest of the world, perhaps. Um, so we needed to, uh, kind of educate on how to measure their success and to set proper, uh, a KPI. So, uh, because of the culture here, when someone says no to something like, Hey, do you want this? And, and you say no to it. That's the end of the conversation. And for me as a salesperson, I was taught that no is not the end of the conversation. There is more to it. So, so I do a lot of uh, training myself to, to let them know how to deal with objections, how to uh, walk away or how to reconduct the conversation to something that might be interesting for us, um, but always listening to the customer and, and, and their needs. So we have those meetings in the, in the afternoon. I also like to go out myself because I'm, I'm not an office person. I like to be out in, in the street. Um, so I, I will, I will go to visit hotels, restaurants and, and speak. And uh, people here really appreciate when the owner of a, of a company goes and visits them. It makes them feel important. They will even lay out the table for you and wow and, and and all these things and and speak and speak and speak for hours um so i like to do that once once a week it it helps me grasp a, a sensation of of what we're doing and it helps me gather uh, uh complaints and 
and, and things that we might need to improve on. Um, customer service team is, is active all day, sending messages, dealing with complaints. I also train the customer service team to deal with these uh, complaints and how to upsell on, on new products and so on. They are uh, WhatsApp the whole day, WhatsApp, everything is WhatsApp here. Um, and then uh, Helen is, is very focused on, on marketing. We have a, a lot of uh, digital marketing going on, Google ad campaigns, Instagram campaigns, uh, Tokopedia, which is the equivalent of Amazon in Indonesia. Okay. Um, we have our products there and we have promotions there. So Helen is a graphic designer typically, uh, and she's been catching up with all this uh, huge uh, world of digital marketing and, and advertising uh, and, and she's she's doing that she does the ads she does trial and errors she she's a very good graphic designer so we are constantly doing things for our instagram or um, designing new labels we're just about to launch launch our new labels right now which uh, you will see shortly um, that's that's all of that is Helen's task and, and producing materials for the sales guys that they need, uh, brochures, things, and, and so on. That's that's uh, that's Helen's task. And I think that's about it. I, I guess I should say that uh, my task is 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 would be to making sure that uh, everything works uh, uh, during the week and that everyone is doing uh, uh, their job. And in terms of production, that we don't have too many out of stocks because uh, we are experiencing some auto stocks at the moment, um, but if the auto stocks are not so significant to put up with a, a, another investment to upgrade the more shells and so on, then then we just we just move forward or or slightly increase the prices to to slow the demand. Yeah, that's amazing. Like you you have a full fledged microgreen like masterpiece in in the works. Like I, I feel like most microgreens farms kind of do the sales themselves. They do production or at least part of the production themselves. That was the situation, you know, I was in even, even with a larger scale farm, but it sounds like you really have leveraged your time really well um, to have all, all the different parts taken care of so that you can focus on whatever is most important in that given period of time, uh, which it seems like, you know, obviously sales is, is a big one. So it sounds like you're doing a lot of, a lot of, a lot of making sure the staff are well-trained. I think it's, it's, it's also really smart to go actually visit the customers. Uh, I think a lot of people get to the point where you're at, where you have, you know, I don't know, like about 15 staff or, or you know, 17, uh, and they're spending all the time on, on the computer, kind of focusing on strategy and things like that, where, you know, sometimes you have to actually be on the ground uh, as you know, as a, a, a CEO of a company and see what is actually happening. Um, and, and, and I learned that from, uh, there was an interview years ago with Elon Musk where, you know, he was on the factory floor, uh, when they were struggling and it was just like, it was, it was very eye opening to me. Cause you always think of, you know, people that own bigger companies and, and they're just kind of like in their, their high tower watching things over, but actually being on the ground is, is it's not only good for relationships with customers, but also to understand what's actually happening on a day-to-day -day basis in, in your business. So I think, I think that's great that you, you have the mixture of the two of running a, a very successful microgreens business uh, and everything that comes with that, uh, but also being ground zero and checking up to making sure everything's running smoothly uh, and, and doing whatever needs to be done that day to make sure everything uh, yeah, runs, runs smoothly. Um, 
Um, you've been doing this for a relatively short period of time, just a few years. What, what do you see the trajectory of uh, Greens Bali in the next few years and, and how that kind of looks um, with expansion? Um, sensitive topic. Um, so I, I guess it's fair to say that um, in two years, we've reached profit two months. Um, the rest of the months, we still haven't uh, uh, found a way to, to have consistent profit. Um, so having that in mind and with the investors pushing on you uh, to achieve that milestone, um, we, know, we know that Indonesia could hold a uh, hundred, if not more, medium-sized vertical farms uh, for sure, because the demand here is, is outrageous and, and the agricultural uh, landscape is, is not very well structured and, and people are importing uh, uh, lettuces and, and lemons and oranges from China. Um, almost uh, in Jakarta, where we went there, 90% of the fruits and vegetables are imported from China. That's just because the management and the climate conditions here are not not very good to to be able to fulfill such amount of, of produce that they need for the locals here. Um, in in that sense, we explored the possibility to build a vertical farm in Jakarta, double the size as this one. We had two investors lined up. The business plan was making sense. Uh, we were learning a bit from mistakes uh, that we did here at the beginning. Um, everything was good. We even went uh, to the biggest supermarket chain in, in Jakarta and we signed a distribution contract once the products were in the market. So that was to incentivize invest investors that we had already mm -hmm. already a deal. But as the time went on, we we realized that it was a bit of challenging to convince people to invest in this business if you don't generate profits. And at the end of the day, investors will look only for that um, rather than seeing what are you doing for this planet and, 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 and what is your purpose. Some people might have more patience than other. Uh, venture capital certainly don't. And it's, it's become obvious to us that we need to invest our time in making sure that this works. Um, yeah. So we we could go to Jakarta tomorrow, um, but we won't. And in terms of Bali, uh, we have partnerships aligned to have other facilities uh, here um, without us investing in them. They uh, People want to build farms here. Uh, Greens Valley will operate the farm for you. Uh, we will be your supplier of seeds, soil, and whatever, and expertise. Uh, so we are encouraging small entrepreneurs here that we can train uh, and that we can also buy the products from when we have uh, uh, that need. So what we're doing right now is changing our business model so that we have a more reliable source of, of income uh, rather than, than microgreens. Because... Microgreens, if you think about it, uh, it's not the first need product in, in, in any restaurant. It's 
purely nutritional, decorative, but it's not like the lettuce or the tomatoes that you have to buy every day. So since, since we realized that, we thought we might as well use our customer base to offer fruits and vegetables. Um, mm -hmm. and, then, and then once we have an income a source, a new income source with fruits and vegetables, we might be able to provide that extra boost that we are lacking to, to, to reach a, a profit because we're there with microgreens and the, the, the cost of goods, the, the cross margin, everything makes sense. It's just that we still need to reach that revenue level to offset the expenses that, that, that we have. And that we will achieve by becoming the leaving uh, fruits and vegetables supplier in, in Bali and then we can top up with uh, with microgreens. I think that's the evolution that, that we're trying to, to achieve right now, rather than uh, expanding as much as we would and seeing this as just as a, a, a building a monster or a multi-billion dollar company. First, we need to really nail down um, a business model that can help us make a, a, a living and, 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 and can help us sell this business model to, to, to investors that, that see, okay, this is working. This thing is, is generating profits. Now you can expand to Thailand, to Vietnam, to Jakarta, to wherever you want. And we were ready to do that. It's just that we needed to take a step back. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's, that's great to hear that, um, you're, you're doing that. Cause I, I think a lot of the, the bigger vertical farms just kept moving forward, even though their model wasn't, they, they didn't refine it enough to get, to increase the efficiency enough. Um, and sometimes rent can be very expensive and at least in North America for a, a vertical farming facility and then electricity in a lot of places, like in Europe, that's what caused a lot of the farms to. Uh, to suffer when energy prices went up last year. So there, there's so many factors at play there, but I, th I'm sure there's a ton of efficiencies you can gain in, in your system. Just uh, like labor efficiency, I think is a big one on farms and using more uh, automation can really be a time saver, but I'm glad you're taking the step back, refining the system, making sure uh, that, that it works before expanding. It, it's often in that reflection period where you're trying to reanalyze what makes sense that you kind of take a bird's eye view of the business and, and can get a different perspective than being running it every day. So I, I think that that'll definitely help uh, move you guys towards uh, more profitability and refining the system so that, you know, you can then take on Jakarta and Thailand and all the other places that I'm sure you would love to expand to and bring all the amazing benefits of microgreens to, to people in, in other areas in Asia. So that, that's, that's amazing to hear. Um, I, I'd love to, uh, just going back to um, uh, what you mentioned earlier about, you know, always asking questions to, to, to customers and trying to gather more information. Um, I'm just curious if there's any major trends you've seen uh, by doing that and any, any uh, valuable information that you'd be willing to share uh, with other growers that you've kind of learned through that very uh, extensive and important process. Yes. Um... One one thing I I uh, it was surprising for for me to 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 learn was uh, what what did the the restaurants appreciate most in 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 our microgreens? Surprisingly enough, it was 
it was not the freshness um, quality was there in some comments but it was our customer service um, I think not many people realize how important it is for a company to be fully centered uh, to the customer and and I see this in in many companies here in Bali when uh, a lot of companies just look at themselves how I, I, I can be cooler how I can be greater, how I can be, whatever, but they don't really have a strict focus uh, 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 to the customers. And the companies that say they do, 50% um, of them are lying. Um, so I, I, I think some of the learnings that, that we've had, it wasn't of the quality. We focus on quality. We, we, we always look at everything in detail. We don't sell packs that don't look good. Um, we focus in quality, but one of the learnings most important is to have full customer focus and to, to integrate their feedback into your strategies, fully integrate them. If you have 50, 10, 100, 200, no matter the size of your customer base, fully integrate any feedback from the customers into your business. That's, that's the way for us, uh, uh, to have a very loyal customer base, but, but, but also a, cu a customer base that the relationship is so great. I can go eat uh, a dinner at the owner of one of the supermarkets here in Bali. Um, it's, um, yeah, that's one of the learnings. The other, uh, learning that we did when I tried to, uh, uh survey in, ter in terms of, uh, uh, flavors because of this region being so focused on, on spicy. Uh, the purchasing managers, they, they kind of disregard the preferences of expats, which is not, not spicy. Um, and then we, we saw that their preferred uh, uh, product to buy was green mustard, uh, 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 quite spicy because they thought they needed to spice up all the, uh, all the, all their dishes. So I was, I was quite surprised that, that, uh, they would think that uh, spicy, spicy, we need more spicy, grow radish, grow uh, green mustard. And, and I was quite surprised to, to see that that's, that's, that was one of their uh, uh, preferred things, knowing the, the, the customer base uh, they have. And then the last thing was the, um, uh, not so much related to the, to the operation part, but the flexibility that we have in creating products for people. Um, if, a, if a, we, we do salad mixes, um, and, and now we do salad mixes with fruits and vegetables also, uh, but, but we, we are able to fully adapt to whoever wants to buy a salad mix from us individually. We don't even consider, okay, we need 10 people to, to have demand for this type of product. No, no, we, we, if someone, a chef or an individual says, that they would prefer a mix of X, Y, Z, uh, uh, of our products, we'll make it for them and, and we'll sell it and we'll bring it for them. And, and, and that's adaptability for, for us is a very, very important aspect. Um, because you keep people engaged, you keep a uh, people, uh, a feeling with your company, they feel important. Oh, they made this, this for me. And then that spirals into other things. So. 
yeah, I guess. Yeah, no, that, that, that's great. <clears throat> Those are all very uh, valuable insights with the customization. When, when you're doing things like that, kind of going out of your way to service customers and create that high quality customer service, it, it's in a way building your brand because that loyalty is part of the branding is that people buy your product, they love it, and they keep coming back partially because of the product, but also because of the service that you're offering. And uh, I think that's, that's a, a great insight. Um, and you know, the, the, the latter years of, of running my farm, I started thinking more about branding and, and things like that. Whereas the early years, I was just like, I'm going to produce the best product I can as much of it as I can get it out to people. I didn't focus on customer service in, in, in the way that, that, that you are. I was more just like, get, get as many people to eat microgreens as, as I can. That's the best way that I, I saw forward. But I think branding and creating loyalty through relationships um, can can serve in the long run uh, uh, to create a much much more valuable brand and uh, valuable business because no matter what happens, those customers are going to be loyal to you because of everything you've done up to that point. Um, and it's just like any other relationship, like you know, you're just trying to trying to build it and, uh, and and get rapport on both ends. And like you said, that's awesome that you can just go eat dinner at at uh, one of the owners of of the supermarket chains you sell to. Like that just speaks to the uh, to the personal nature of of how you approach your your business and and the products that you sell. Um, on a more personal note, I'd love to hear what your favorite microgreen that you grow or consume is um, that you just like eating on a you know daily basis or weekly basis on your own. Uh, I really like broccoli uh, microgreen. I I think. Uh, for for a person that doesn't have experience with microgreens like myself, um, not not so much experience. I mean, in, in a technical way, um, I was really surprised that a, a, a herb or, or or a shoot this size could taste the same as uh, uh, a fully grown broccoli. And and for me, the the, the flavor that the broccoli brings. Um, to any dish is r remarkable. That's broccoli is is by far uh, the my favorite. And then I would uh, go on to to uh, more spicier things. I like uh, as a good Spanish. Um, I like uh, ham. Uh, uh, sorry, um, omelet sandwiches. Um, and then I would have omelet with green mustard or, or radish in a sandwich. I think that's one of the most spectacular pleasures in life. Um, and yeah, I think those two would be my, my, my favorites. Awesome. Have you ever tried putting broccoli microgreens in a smoothie? No, no, no. I, 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 I would, I would try it. it. It it'll surprise you. You almost don't even taste it with the right types of, of vegetables. It may actually be, cause there's, I know there's so many um, like smoothie kind of places in, in, in Bali, like smoothie bowls, that sort of stuff. So there may be another market for microgreens blended in uh, to, to, to products. If you haven't tried it, I would recommend it. It's a great way to get the nutrition in uh, without having the green flavor. Like it'll make your smoothie look green, but you won't really taste it. It's very interesting. I remember one of my, uh, staff at, at living earth uh just randomly we, we had like a smoothie bar at, at the farm 
and he put in like a ton of broccoli microgreens with, I think it was like coconut water, um, and some like kind of more sourish fruit. It was dark green, but you couldn't taste it. And I was blown away that for some reason, um, specifically broccoli microgreens, you can't really taste them in smoothies, but it makes like a really nice vibrant green color and then you get all the nutrition. So for people that don't necessarily want to eat greens, uh, it's a great way to, to, to get it in. Uh, you know, just make it in the morning or, you know, as a, for customers, there may be a, another opportunity there for customers to use it in, in that way. Uh, just, just, uh, uh, interesting side note there. That's cool. I'll try. I'll try. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're just about to wrap up, but I I'd love to hear if, if you can go back two years ago to when you started the farm and meet the younger Ivan, what advice would you give him to set him up for success in this business? That's a very interesting question. Yeah. We made a lot of mistakes at the beginning. Um, we made a lot of mistakes because when we wanted to start and we wanted to fulfill the, the demand as, as quick as possible, because people were shit that there's a new guy in town offering microgreens, uh, boom, boom, boom. And I was like, yes, yes, I have everything you need as many as you want. Just let me know. I boom, 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 buy cheap shelves from Tokopedia, from, from here and there, buy cheap lights, buy cheap everything, just go, go, go. That was uh, a mistake that we, that, or a learning that you were able to do as a, as a business owner. At the end of the day, the, the footprints that you leave uh, behind, they mark uh, who you are. So I think if I was to start over again, I would tell my younger self, push hard, push as hard as you did at the beginning, but um, try to expand uh, slower and, and, and consider having better quality lights, better shelves, consider also hiring experts to give you better advice on, on soil management, on seed supply, on yields and, and all these things, consider experts from the very beginning, YouTube cannot teach you everything. Um, so yeah, I guess I would tell myself to slow down and, and kind of take care of things, uh, better, but at, at the same time, it it's in the nature of, of everyone, uh, of, of anyone, uh, individually, uh, uh, genetically to do things, uh, the, the, the way you do, you don't always learn from your, from your mistakes. I'm very happy to make uh, a constant mistakes and, and then learn from those. Otherwise it's very boring. Um, but yes, slow down, uh, take things calmly, but push hard. Awesome. I think that's, that's wonderful advice. I, I think even just knowing that you can fail and be okay with it, I think is a, a really big step that you often take as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't start businesses because they're scared to, to fail. And once you get over that hump of being scared to fail, you're like, oh, I actually learned a lot. There was a benefit to actually failing. It, it's a very big mindset shift. And, and, and the other thing that you mentioned, which was to, to kind of talk to people that have have the experience in, in, in doing it, whether it's agriculture experts or, you know, uh, like soil experts, whatever it may be to advance your knowledge so that 
you're going into the business with the best information. Um, and like you said, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because the information on YouTube is really, it's really not that good. And there's a reason it's free. And there's a reason that it's uh, uh, going to give you mediocre results is because like often the people that are teaching things haven't necessarily gone through the ropes of, of actually learning it uh, from start to finish. Just as, uh, you know, as an example, if a YouTube video is by someone that is just growing microgreens as a hobby, uh, they're not going to have the experience that you would as, as, you know, growing microgreens commercially for two years now. So that's one thing I wish I did was find someone that was ahead of me and uh, gather as much information and insight from them as, as you can. Because uh, it just speeds up your growth and avoids a bunch of mistakes that can be very costly as, you know, I think you witness, I've witnessed, and, and I think most growers witness in the, in the first few years, um, not having full availability of high quality information. Great. Yeah. That's yeah. Very essential. Awesome. So uh, if listeners want to connect more with you or your farm, how can they find you on social media and online? Okay, well, I'm not very active on, on social media, but uh, uh, for Greens Valley, um, you can uh, send us a message on Instagram. Uh, our website has many uh, ways to contact us. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess that the easiest part for us is, is uh, uh, Instagram because Helen goes through every single message. Uh, but then on the website, you have a WhatsApp button that you can uh, chat directly with the customer service and if there's a question for me I, I, I will be notified um, yeah we're, we're very very approachable and and, and we encourage uh, uh, everyone that has doubts or that wants to start the business to contact us because we we will we want to help people uh, consider this as, as a as a good business to, to start and, and and maybe help them not make the same mistakes that uh, that we did. Exactly. And, and I'll, I'll put that in the, I'll put the, uh, the website and Instagram on, uh, on the show notes. So feel free, anyone that's listening to just click on that link and you can reach out to, to Ivan or Helen or just follow their journey. Cause I'm, I'm sure it'll be very exciting over the next few years, seeing uh, the transformation and changes that uh, they'll have with all the experience they have now uh, running Greens Bali. So th that, this was great. This was a very insightful uh, episode uh, and just hearing all, all the, the differences between North America and, and growing in, in Bali, I think was, was very fascinating. And it's, it's great to see how you're running the business, being very strategic. Um, and uh, I, I, I know you guys are going to be successful going into the next few years, and I'm excited to watch that um, unfold. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And um, yeah. Thank you, Jonah. I really appreciate you taking the, the, the time to um, interview us. It's been a pleasure. My first uh, podcast. I hope there's uh, another one in, in the future. We can do a episode two if you want. Um, and thank you once again. For sure. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in to the Microgreens Mastery Podcast. To access a wealth of insights, just click the subscribe button, stay notified about each new episode, and enjoy all of this wisdom for free. If you're ready to supercharge your Microgreens business, visit microgreensconsulting.com for a gold mine of guides and resources. We've transformed thousands of Microgreens businesses, and you're invited to join the success story. 
Let's stay connected. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at Mike Greens Consulting for exclusive content and expert tips and wisdom. If you found this episode insightful, please leave us a review, spread the word, and let's share Mike Green's magic with the world. Until next time, let curiosity fuel your growth and may happiness be your harvest. Happy growing, everyone.